All right, welcome back to 1022. Uh, we're here this week with a slightly unwell Sweetman. Are you, f- you feeling all right? You- I, I'm not too bad. I'm a little. I spent most of the weekend uh, prone, um, not just because of the coronation. <laughs> Well, he's been part of it prone and part of it prostrate. The prostrate part was during the coronation. But I thought the coronation was a really interesting uh, example of two things. Um, one, the history of India with the Kohinoor, and I hope that little excursion at the beginning of the lecture was fun. Um, I don't claim any credit for it. It's mostly um, the work of Anita Arnand and William Dalrymple, who, uh, if you guys like podcasts and you like that yeah, story, they true. have a four-hour version of that story, which I tried to give in four minutes, um, uh, which is really interesting. But also, I think the... Uh, I mean, I I wasn't supposed to be... At home. I was supposed to be tramping all weekend, but because I was at home, I did watch a fair chunk of the coronation and found it fascinating to see the links between religious power and state power, mm. given that we were going to be thinking about it this week um and how i mean there it's it's very much taken for granted but in a sense it's been almost neutered i'm I'm not sure i would say entirely neutered that uh it's not as scary as the links between religion that we talked about today uh might seem to be um, although although it's arguable that it's more subtle right i mean yeah it, absolutely i think th- there is a way in which what the coronation made visible was something that's invisible but omnipresent in in british culture all the time so no, a kind of a normative hegemonic protestantism is a kind of is is default really and Would, for a long time uh you know up until the, the last century and the second half of the last century you know expressions of other non-normative religions were subject to various kinds of censorship oh yeah absolutely like you couldn't you couldn't be in the house of commons if you were a, there you go. uh even a catholic never mind a jew uh, yeah. or a hindu um, yeah. there was a zoroastrian in the 1890s which is interesting but anyway yeah I, I i think you're right and the other thing is to say that that there has a, is a very long and bloody history mm. um of catholic and particularly around catholic and protestants but mm. uh uh, but not only, um, uh, there was a, uh, a story about one of the previous coronations that was going around where, uh, I think this was the, the chief rabbi in, in the UK mentioned this, that um, some Jews had turned up to congratulate the king uh, on his coronation. This was in the early 18th century, I think, and, and um, they, they all got murdered. Uh, <laughs> Because they weren't Protestants, uh, so yeah, it's, it's. I mean, it's not a joke. It's, it's yeah. yeah, serious political violence, which is something that we dealt uh, with a fair bit today, and I think students found quite uh, confronting. Confronting, which, yeah. Um, I guess was uh, we don't set out to upset our students, but um, as I said at the end of the lecture, I think it's important that people are aware of this because it is such a big issue uh, in such a big country. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, I mean, in a way, the two lectures I think hang together in this. In this interesting way, because for most of what we've got uh, led up to in terms of the lectures, we've talked about these religious traditions in terms of their doctrinal beliefs, their philosophies, um, you know, their worship practices. Last week it was about sort of uh, attitudes towards gender, towards women. Um, but we really haven't kind of looked at these things as embedded in political cultures particularly. And in both cases, I think there is the expectation that a lot of people bring to these religions which is an expectation that is cued from the history of scholarship on these religions, which is that they're kind of otherworldly. They're sort mm-hmm. of concerned with asceticism and salvation and personal realization and release from samsara, release from the worldly sphere. And therefore, when you 
go back and ask the question, well, where's the politics? And it's everywhere. I think it really throws people. It's surprising. I mean, certainly that's the case in in Buddhism, that when people learn about, um, you know, Buddhist nationalist movements in Sri Lanka or in Myanmar and Thailand, uh, it, there's like a kind of extra level of surprise, like, oh, my God, Buddhists are involved in this, too. And, t- you know, Tiffany, of course, asked the interesting question today at the end, like, what about is religion, does it promote violence? Yeah. What's the link? Yeah, I, I mean, I think you could read the entire history of Hinduism as a process of exchange between the Brahmins, the priests, and the Kshatriyas, the, the kings, yeah. uh, and how they have secured each other's power and yeah. legitimacy um, throughout history in a sort of mutual recognition of each other. That's yeah, and and that what's what what disrupted that was first of all uh, you know, the displacement of Hindu kings uh, by Mughals who were uh, religiously Muslim, but often not in any kind of doctrinaire sense, often they showed a surprising degree of interest in Hindu thought, mm. uh, promoted the translation of Hindu texts, and uh, one of them even tried to invent a religion that sort of brought the two together as a way of unifying India that he was ruling. Um, yeah, and then, of course, the British. The British come in uh, initially just as, uh, I think you would struggle to, to call them Christian in any in any real sense. They were looters and um, um, closer to pirates than to priests, uh, but then later on, after the middle of the 19th century, as a sort of explicitly Christian nation performing a God-given duty uh, in India to, you know, to civilize and Christianize. And yeah, and that is, it was hugely disruptive for the links between religion and politics mm. uh, because they held themselves apart from, from Hinduism. Um, but yeah, and now that's... And then I guess carrying on into the political early political history of, of independent India, where there was a determined effort by people who were you know, profoundly westernized. Uh, Nehru uh, was educated in the UK, had a vision of India that was very much a secularist uh, vision, even though he was personally Hindu by birth and upbringing. But there's no doubt that his his aim for India was that India should eventually sort of transcend religion, should mm-hmm. leave religion behind. Um, yeah, and how you know that that is gradually religion has reasserted itself, although or never really went away. Mm. They, they always had its critics. Um, yeah, so and, and there's possibly a way in which that that kind of era of independence politicians who made uh, who, who who oversaw the decolonizing moments of Sri Lanka or of India or of you know other, other kind of Asian countries that was a kind of a certain class of political elites that was sort of of their time but maybe that was the exception not the rule that you know historically certainly this is the case if you look you know throughout asia religion and politics and statecraft are just totally interlinked right so the the moment of ostensible secularization at in the 1950s 60s you know may, I, I don't know i sort of wonder if that's the exception and we're, we're sort of re-equilibrating back to what is a is the more usual state like, i mean i i kind of happen to believe that I mean, if you look globally, for example, there are more declaredly religious states or as many as there are declaredly secular states. And if you actually look into, if you sort of look beneath the, the rhetoric of, of constitutions and other things, I would say that there are more religiously leaning political cultures than there are, you know, purely secular religious, you know, secularly leaning political cultures, as, as the example being, of course, India which after um, the 1970s includes a part of its constitution that declares itself a secular state. But from what we just talked about today, we can see how, how Hinduism is really 
closely intertwined with politics there, right? So, you know, if that's the natural resting state of religion, that religion and politics are naturally intertwined like that, I think the question for us is not like, you know, what, what do we make of this? But in a, in a way, the question is like, why do we think otherwise? Yeah, why is it so surprising to us? Um, yeah, and I think possibly Kiwis don't realize uh, how much of an outlier we are mm. uh, as a society where, I mean, even compared to Britain, which the correlation yeah. is like a shiny example yeah. of, uh, where religion is... Yeah, although it's not it's not absent here either. I'm sure no. you would have plenty of no, examples of that. No, there's Jesus Christ at the opening of Parliament, right? There is, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, although they changed the prayer, right? They don't have the daily prayer anymore. So, um, yeah. But And there is the so-called Taliban faction in the National Party, um, a group of fairly hardcore evangelical Christians uh, who you know support each other and are supported by people outside um, in the... In the yeah, and I guess you could also, some people would point to deep links between uh, the left and some nonconformist movements, Methodism and mm-hmm. Presbyterianism uh, in New Zealand. But yeah, that's beyond my. Yeah, but it, but in a way, that, that being you know, New Zealand is very much an outlier, right? Yeah. I mean, it, uh, I think the, so. I think you know, one one of the implications, and then just getting back to this question though about the, the links between religion and violence is, um, I think at moments when countries are asserting various forms of identity moments at which they want to garner a kind of a consolidate a a voter base a you know create some kind of form of in-group you know religion is very useful even at the political level because it's always kind of it's always just sort of underlying the surface right it's always sort of there incipiently and even if it's not there even if you can't mobilize kiwis as a as a christian nation it's very easy, I would say, or it seems easier to mobilize them as a nation that's not another religious group. So, you know, um, I, I as as, a, as someone who, as a Jewish person who lives in New Zealand, you know, I'm I'm very aware of the fact that um, again there is a sort of silent Christian consensus among the self presentation of, of sure. Of look Kiwis at look that, at all the many of the schools in New Zealand. Uh, yeah, many of the delivery of social services. That's all through church based. Organizations to to a remarkable degree, really. Yeah. But, or uh, even even until recently, until very recently, the uh, the teaching of Bible in schools, right? That was an opt out, not opt in option. In which you know, if you're you somehow object to that for whatever reason, if you're not a, a Christian, for example, um, you know, you really have to kind of st- literally stand aside from the yeah. general population. Um, I think what I was trying to show in today's lecture is how it's difficult but not impossible to do that with Hinduism. Yeah. Uh, because Hinduism sort of resists reduction to, you know, a neat set of things that That's you can, right. uh, you know, a kind of checklist approach. I mean, all religions do really, um, but Hinduism, it's perhaps particularly difficult uh, to do that, but not impossible. If, you, if you're determined enough, you can insist on one version of the Ramayana and the Ramayana right. as the one text to be held above other texts and Rama as the one God to be held above uh, other gods. And, and yeah, you, you can, uh, you can do it. I still, I mean, so, but I mean, this was interesting. There is in a way that's the, like a two step process to teach the equivalent of Bible in schools, right? First, you got to make a Bible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then you got to teach it in schools. Yeah. Um, I, I think, I mean, my confidence has been dented by the continuing, success political success of the bjp but uh i still like to think that hinduism uh ultimately will will resist being you know 
reduced in that way yeah. and that uh, too many Hindus will be too attached to you know the wonderfully contradictory nature of yep. their gods and their traditions and the extraordinary multiplicity of their texts uh, that they just in the end they just won't buy this um, yeah except that, that you know religions always overflow the amount of interpretations we can bring to them yeah but the problem is that when you have a certain powerful group that's behind a certain interpretation it's very hard for the other you know non um, empowered groups to to get airtime in their interpretations and and there yeah. is I guess what I, and I've just written an article about this with a colleague about in the in in sort of Buddhist Southeast Asia that there is a way in which there is a kind of a slow train co-optation of religious voices that can happen say among high-ranking monks in Southern Asia where the state can kind of control them just enough to make sure that whatever version of Buddhism there is is dominant it at least coheres with, or at least it doesn't con- it doesn't conflict with state interests, right? Right. So that that I I, don't, I think religion in and of itself as a kind of a a set of resources, a set of texts, a set of persons, practices, bodily disciplines, and so on. It can never be it can never be fully politicized. Yeah. But the problem is that you can, but you can have the loudest voices of Hinduism, Buddhism, name your religion, be of a certain from a certain group. Yeah, I mean, I I think that controlling interpretations is really interesting. So I was fascinated by uh, not just the coronation, but the, I mean, it, it was embedded in the liturgy um, in which what the things that were presented to the king, what they meant was you were told what they were meant. Right? Yeah, these yeah, yeah. these spurs worn by knights as they yeah, yeah. you know goaded their horse into battle. What this means is that you'll be brave in defence of the poor, and it was just. I mean, it was so naked and so open. Um, and, you know, this take this sword and use it to, you know, not lead a crusade to recapture Jerusalem, which is probably right. what it meant <laughs> when it was waved in front of the king in the 8th century. Uh, but, you know, again, defend the poor and, and be noble. Yeah, it's, it's it, you're right about that, that, you know, these things are capable of multiple interpretations, but the determination to interpret them in one way, even if that's a sort of, you know, a positive way or what we might see as a positive way in the case of the coronation or uh, other ways. I mean, Rama's bow, uh, very different, right? Fighting uh, poverty. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Poverty in Muslims. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that's that's probably enough for today. Here comes uh, the outro. Well, hang on. Just next week, we will we will turn to some uh, slightly more uh, appealing aspects, perhaps, of the tradition. So yeah. uh, we look forward to yoga and to, to meditation uh, in the next couple of weeks. Okay. So sit back, relax, drop into that asana, and uh, we'll take you out with a with a beatbox.